right. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer, the live event. We are so thrilled that you are all here, that you've turned out on this slightly foggy Sydney morning all the way to the Museum of Contemporary Art, and we're just absolutely thrilled, aren't we, Al? We're Yep, we're thrilled. There are so many of you. Hello, everyone. It's very strange to be talking to you and to all of these people at the same time. If you don't know, my name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, and we have a wonderful writing community, many of whom are here today. I can see so many familiar faces, and uh, we run world-class writing courses and are the leading writing centre in Australia. And, of course, I'm here with my partner in crime, the very talented, and wonderful, Alison Tate, who is the author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Book Cipher series. So thank you to all of you for coming as well. But first, we want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay our respects to the elders, both past, present, and emerging. So, of course, I have to open with... <laughs> How are you, Al? Well, Val, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even, for those regular podcast listeners, I'm not even fair to middling. I am actually quite excited. I'm a little overwhelmed because generally speaking, when I'm looking at you all, you're in the podcast community and you're like this big. Um, and as I said, it's quite strange to be speaking to Valerie and have you all look. I mean, honestly, when we talk to each other, it's just like I'm talking to Val and we're chatting away and we're doing stuff and I forget that there are people out there listening, and yet here you all are. <laughs> so, in short, beyond fair to middling, Val. Come on, you can do better than that, can't you? <laughs> beyond I'm fair excited! To middling. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we never expected well over a thousand, uh, not a thousand, a million downloads ago that we would ever hold an event like this, that we would ever have 200 of you at, at a sellout event um, at the Vivid Festival. So thank you so much for being so thank awesome. Thank you for coming. And thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. We also never, ever expected when we started out on this journey a couple of years ago um, that we would write a book together. We, um, we decided that we would do the podcast because, you know, we like talking to each other and it gave us an excuse to catch up every single week, which was always a fun thing. Um, and, of course, it also gave us the opportunity, and this was always my ulterior motive, don't tell Val, but it gave, gave me the opportunity every week to interview amazing authors and writers and get to know them and also, you know, basically pick their brains and steal their secrets, which, you know, technically is what we all wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea that we were able to bring all of those things together um, into this book is, is really, really exciting for us. Um, I, I hope you guys love it. Uh, we have gone through every podcast episode. We have pulled out the best possible writing advice that we could find. And I'm telling you, I listened to them all. I went through the transcripts. I was looking for the stuff that wasn't read more, that wasn't write more. I was looking for the stuff that was the real gold. And it's in there, and I'm really, really excited that we were able to bring it to you guys. Yeah. And we're very excited because basically we wrote this book for you. We didn't write this book for ourselves. We wrote this book and we imagined the sorts of questions, and we didn't just imagine them, we received a lot of questions <laughs> from you about the sorts of things that you wanted to know. So, um, yeah, this book is for you. And only today it is $20. The regular price you'll see um, online is, is $25. But if you want to grab yours after the event just outside, um, Ra, who's got her hand up, will be helping 
helping out just outside. And, um, and Alison and I will be happy to sign them, of course, if you would like that as well. Um, if you are one of these social media types, <laughs> as we are, if you're one of these social media types, then the hashtag is hashtag Vivid Sydney um, and hashtag So You Want to Be a Writer. And of course, feel free to tag us at the Australian Writers' Centre, at, well, at Writers' Centre AU if you're going to um, tweet or Instagram or Facebook from this event. So we just wanted to know who was in the room in terms of the kind of writing you're interested in. Presumably, if you're at an event called So You Want to Be a Writer, there's some level of interest, whether that's low or high, on <laughs> wanting to be a writer. So we just wanted to get um, just a little bit of an indication of, if you could just stick your hand in, hand in the air, of who is interested in fiction writing, as in short stories, novels. There's a vast majority oh, I'm of shocked. the room. <laughs> <laughs> now, some people because often there's an overlap. Like if you had a Venn diagram, sometimes there's an overlap with other kinds of writing. And the usual other one is some kind of freelance writing or content writing or copywriting. So can we just have a look? So that, yeah, it's a smaller number of people, but there is a little bit of an overlap. But definitely most of the people in the room are interested in fiction writing. That's pretty much what we thought. So we have geared the, um, we have geared the, the day accordingly. So, um, so... Are we ready? <laughs> Ow. Ow. Okay, I'm back. I'm braced. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? I am so ready, Val. Is everyone so ready, ready for the word of the week? Yes. Okay, so the word of the week this week is scripturiant. Of course it is. Scripturiant. Does anyone know what it means? Scripturiant. Some people? Well, I'm going to tell you, of course. <laughs> It Thank means having a desire or passion, and there's a typo, sorry, or passion to write, or having a liking or itch for authorship. So I suspect that most people in this room will uh, relate to scripturiant. Yes? Did you like that word, Al? Uh, yeah, I love it. I feel like we should all be wearing hashtag scripturiant t-shirts yes. right now. That merch collection is getting bigger and bigger. And Are you going to use it in a sentence? No. <laughs> Why not? Are you? It's your job. Your word of the week, woman. Your job. I'm going to shout it far and wide. Okay. All right. So we have some fantastic guests for you um, at this event, and we're going to introduce them very soon. And I am so excited because we want to bring you the best of the best, and not only the best authors, but the best teachers and the best and most entertaining ones as well. And I think these two definitely fit the bill. But first, you already know my awesome co-host. In case, though, you have been living under a rock, she is, of course, the very talented author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. I've known her forever. I've known her since 1999 when we shared... When, when we, we were 10. Had <laughs> we were 10 when in we were 10. We were so young. When we had desks right next to each other in a windowless office yeah. at uh, Clio magazine. Very unlike this with the spectacular view. Yeah, nothing uh, like yeah. this because we were... Um, really low down in the picking no, order. We were low. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that's where we first bonded. And I've known Alison ever since. And it's been such a privilege to see her journey going from being uh, the lifestyle editor at Cleo at, to many other incarnations, but now as one of Australia's most successful middle grade fiction authors. So please welcome Alison Tate. Thank you. 
Thank you. I got a cheer. That was exciting. <laughs> Our next guest is the multi-award winning author of over 30 books. Did you hear that? 30. I couldn't even fit all of her books on a slide because it would be impossible. Um, she has written crime, urban fantasy, um, and as Pamela Hart, because so as Pamela Freeman, she's written fantasy, a whole range of different genres. But as Pamela Hart, she writes these historical fiction novels, which are awesome. They're absolutely awesome. They're such great reads. There's so much, I learn so much from all of them. Um, and her most recent book for adults is Desert Nurse, set in World War I in Egypt and Palestine. She's also the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre. Please welcome Pamela Freeman. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Pamela. Our next guest is Freaky. Because uh, <laughs> that's how you want to be introduced. Which is pretty much what I thought from the moment I met her. She's an award-winning Australian crime novelist and a New York Times number one bestseller, mm -hmm. which is nothing, you know, to sneeze at. She was born in the western suburbs of Sydney into a very eccentric family, which if you've heard the podcast episode with Candace, you would have heard some background. Um, and in 2015, she started collaborating on a series of novels with best-selling author James Patterson. So welcome. Welcome, Candace Fox. Take a seat. All right, this is our this is our panel for today, um, and we're going to start with Al. We're going to start with a little bit of speed dating Ooh. because you know I really felt like what we needed here to lift the tone was speed dating. Okay, <laughs> so I've got some questions for Pamela Freeman. Okay. Um, and they're just going to let you get to know her a little bit better. You guys have already heard me banging on for 1,000 million hours, so you don't need to hear anything from me. And it's all going to be Ooh. Pamela. Okay. And Pamela, your time starts now. What are you currently reading? Uh, P.G. Woodhouse, 1920s, um, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves, because I'm writing a book set in the 1920s. Fabulous. What did you want to be when you were 10, Pamela? What I am. Oh, really? Yeah, I wanted to be a writer. Okay. Um, what was your most recent creative date? Uh, the State Library runs uh, lectures once a month, and I went to hear one about the history of Angus and Robertson publishers in Australia cool. by Neil James. Oh, fantastic. Uh, what is your favourite TV show? Okay, long term, I have to admit, it's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> you just put yourself right out there. there. I, I'm sorry. Um, for those of you who may write fan fiction, I started writing fan fiction Star Trek. That's how I got there you my go. start. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Yeah, no, I wouldn't go back in time because oh. I'm very fond of antibiotics. <laughs> <clears throat> and without them, I would have died several times. So I don't want to go anywhere that doesn't have antibiotics. Fair enough. What's your, crea uh, your favourite creative thing to do besides writing? I'm a drummer. Like, oh, my God. Thank <laughs> you. Seriously. <laughs> I'm really glad we did this. <laughs> yes, true. Okay. Yeah. What is your biggest vice? Cooking shows. Cooking shows. Like bake-offs, you know? Bake that kind of show. That is, that is your I can't secret. Go, I can't go past them. can't go past them. them. That's and your kryptonite. And chips. Right there. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. What's your favourite song, Pamela? Um, there's the most beautiful love song called Magnolia Tree by Track Stop Honeymoon, and I, it's the most beautiful love song I know. Okay, yeah. lovely. Um, describe your ideal day. Somebody else does all the cooking and I get to stay in bed and read all day. Ideal. 
All right, and now here for the, here's the big one. All right, everybody, on the edge of your seats. Banoffee or chocolate? Pamela, be very, very careful with your answer. Yeah. I can't eat either of them because of dairy. Oh. What? <laughs> I'll eat yours. You can still choose a team. Um, if you could eat them, if you, if you were able to eat one of them, what would it be? Well, the problem is I don't even know what banoffee tastes like. Okay, so chocolate. <laughs> She's team chocolate by default. <laughs> She's not. By default. <laughs> right there. I'm team red frogs. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Let's not confuse the issue any further. All right. Pamela Freeman. Thank you, Pamela. And of course, I'm sure you guys do this when you go dating, yeah? These are the questions you ask. So, Candace, recent book you've read that you enjoyed? Oh, I have to have enjoyed it. <laughs> you have to have um, enjoyed it. <laughs> because I've been reading a lot of baby sleep books. I'm reading the Trezillians, <laughs> because this is not a burrito. This is, <laughs> it's, the, it's a baby that's the size of a man's size 12 shoe, I'm told. Um, <laughs> I've been reading Adrian McKinty's new one, The Chain, which comes out in July. Ooh, which is it is, good? Yeah, it's really fast and furious and crazy. Um, that, and I yeah. say that because he's a nice friend of mine. So yes. I plug his work. <laughs> All right, finish this sentence. When I was 18, I joined the Navy because... Uh, I've been trying to work that out. <laughs> I... Th I I, I was giving a talk once and um, a, a woman at the back of the room who turned out to be, she said, I'm a psychologist and you craved structure. And I was like, that's probably 300 bucks right there. <laughs> um, but I had a really crazy, wild upbringing and I've always been like a misfit and an outsider. And I think I just saw the pamphlet with everybody in uniform and I thought, hey, I'm going to fit right in. You know, that's what you do. You sign up, they put the uniform on and you fit right in. So. All right. Favourite TV show? Uh, married at first sight. Married. <laughs> okay. I was going to say something like you know arty, like True Detective or something, like something within my genre. But it's yeah. I, when when I sit down to watch Married at First Sight, the dog goes outside, my husband goes into his office. It's like this is my time. All right. First celebrity crush. Leonardo DiCaprio. I tried to contact him via like ESP. When I <laughs> That's really effective. As you yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could travel back in time, which period would you go to? I'd go to 60s and 70s uh, Los Angeles because there's so many serial killers running around at that time. I think it would have just been so interesting. <laughs> Speaking of serial that killers, is that way. <laughs> if a serial killer offered you a hug, knowing you and you knew you weren't going to die from yeah. a hug, would you accept? No. It, it would depend on the serial killer, you know, because that I <laughs> who would, would you accept a hug quite from? Quite close to my neck, you know. Um, oh, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I would accept from most of them, I think. You know, unless they were a cannibal or something. I okay, weirdest thing you did on your honeymoon? I, I, I visited um, body burial sites. Or my, my honeymoon was the whole east coast of um, the US, and my husband said to me, what do you want to do? And all, I was like, there's so many like famous crime places. If anyone's heard the podcast, you podcast people, so you've probably heard Serial. Um, yeah. We went to where they found Heyman Lee's body and we had to, like, scrabble through the bush to get there and we both got ticks. I think you, and I think you should. I was like, you are the best, <laughs> you are the best person in the world. He's so tolerant. He's yeah. See, big freaky, right? Yeah. yeah. Biggest vice? 
Married at first sight. Um, <laughs> at the moment, it's pies, because I'm pregnant. If I see a pie, I have to have it. Okay, if you had the chance to not. have dinner, maybe pies, with anyone in the world, who would you pick? Oh, God. I, I should think about this one, shouldn't I? I don't know. I've had dinner with James Patterson and Bill Clinton, so that was fun. You win. That's pretty good. You win. <laughs> you win. And importantly, but not for your chocolate. Chocolate. Yes. I'm telling you. Okay. People. So I'm I want a show of hands. Who is team chocolate? Who is team Banoffee? <laughs> I am the winner. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. All right. Now, during the podcast, we often have giveaways. So today is no different. So I'm going to ask Alison to be barrel girl right now and show you uh, our first giveaway because with uh, our first giveaway, give you are going to receive a book by each of these wonderful people. Right. I we have sign it later for you. The Book Whoever of Secrets by A.L. Tate. So You Want to Be a Writer by Valerie Koo and Alison Tate. We have Letter from Italy by Pamela Hart. And we have Redemption Point by Candace Fox. So what you need to do now, everyone, is reach under your seat. Dun, dun, dun. And oh, we're doing this now. Woohoo! Oh, the yes! winner! Hey, well done. Oh, the bag. Stick your hand up so that Beck can see you, and Beck will give you your prize. What's your name? Brooke. Congratulations, Brooke. You, you had that Brooke. so fast, did you? Fantastic. Congratulations, Brooke. I was like, she knew it was coming. All right, oh, Al. Cool. All right, so... Everybody relaxed, comfortable, seated, silent. We are going to get into it, okay? This is where we start the bits that are not so you want to be a serial killer, so you want to be a drummer. This is where we get into so you want to be a writer. So the subtitle of our book is how to be creative when you still have a day job, how to get started while you're still doing all of the other million and seven thousand things that you are doing in your life. Mm -hmm. So this is my question for our panellists. We will start with you, Pamela. Mm -hmm. When you started out in writing, did you have a day job? And how did you fit this stuff in? Um, I did have a day job, <clears throat> but it was a writing day job. So I was a scriptwriter for ABC Kids. Um, and my first stories came out of work that I was doing for my, the TV stuff. Um, and I wrote some stories for one of my shows and then one of those. They, I sent five of them to the New South Wales School magazine. They sent four back but they did take the very first one I wrote. Um, so I kept writing them. Um, and eventually, I had a whole collection of short stories. Um, and that book got rejected twice. But, uh, and then I was also working after the ABC. I was working as a, um, as a consultant in organisational communication training. And I found the big thing is um, it was like there was a switch in my head that I had to flick to turn my mind from day job to fiction writing. And the more I did it, the better I got at doing that flick switch. Um, so I think it's about doing that. It's about, 
it's it's about what Jane, Jane Yolen calls bum on seat. Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with that because um, obviously if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that when I started out um, with writing, I had a day job and then I was freelancing and I had children and I had all of those things that, that, um, that everyone, you know, everyone has, let's face it, or, you know, some portion of those things that everyone has. Um, and I think that the, that, that, that switch that you talk about is really important. And I think that that's about finding the time in your day, making the time in your day where you're going to be able to switch, you know, flick that switch the most easy, in the most easy fashion. What about you, Candice? Did you have a day job when you started out? I did, yeah. Uh, I was a university... Well, I was a university student when I wrote my first book that was published, mm -hmm. but I had written four full manuscripts before that that were all rejected. Um, and I, I really started when I was a kid, you know, because my mum my had four kids and then she adopted two and then she fostered 155 kids while I was growing up. So um, you talk about that that switch I think it for me it was more like I had all this noise and chaos and it would push me into a quiet world where I got to be the boss of yeah. of everything um and that that shrink at that talk um yelled it out at, you know she was like oh yeah you you wanted to be in control and all this I was like See, so, <laughs> you really got therapy then yeah you <laughs> really did free therapy um yeah uh so I had always been writing but I wrote Hades while I was at university I was working as a a waitress and and um, I was doing my high school teaching degree, uh, you know, which was a terrible idea for me because I'm part of the frequent criers club. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I just cry at the drop of a hat and teenage boys are brutal. And, um, yeah. yeah, so I squeezed it in around my studies and around, um, you know, working. Um, and yeah. Yeah, so um, I started life off as an accountant and then I went into the corporate world, into corporate communications, and I wrote at night. So I would, you know, have my day job, whether that was in accounting or whether that was in um, corporate communications, and I would just, you know... And, and I wasn't writing fiction. I was doing freelance and content writing and that sort of thing, and I was earning money pretty much like a, as a side hustle um, and I would just do it at night and and that and I did that for a while until one day it was kind of like I knew I had to give it a go full time and it was I woke up one day in September and decided that was it I'm going to try give, doing this full time and and I gave it my all um, I still had the job um, but I gave it my all after hours and within a month I had a full-time job as a writer. So, you know, I think that if you really want something, it can happen. All right, so let's move on to one of the most commonly asked questions we get, well, we hear, is where do you get your ideas from? I know it's like how long is a piece of string <laughs> a little bit, but um, perhaps if you can give us some real concrete examples, and we've got some slides here. Um, so we start with you, Pamela. Okay, some Desert real Lake. concrete examples of where okay. you got your ideas Okay, from. so Desert Lake is about uh, Lake Eyre, Cadithander Lake Eyre, and about the cycle of it filling up and then drying out and what happens to the ecosystem. And um, I got my idea from the evening news where it said, oh, look, Lake Eyre is filling up. <laughs> and I'd always be interested in that as an idea and so I pitched it to my publishers so that I could claim the, the trip out there as a tax <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, an, it's an extraordinary place so literally off the evening news thank you ABC you know yeah and the next one um, okay so the guy with the red ring around him is my grandfather and he was at Gallipoli 
Uh, and I was reading the telegrams that our family received when he was wounded and almost died of an infection after that to my son's class for Anzac Day. And I thought, what would it be like to be the person who got those telegrams? And that's where the soldier's wife came from. I went home and started working on it straight away that day. Um, so that was a book that just wanted to be written. And the guy with the blue um, is the one I took as the, um, the hero, you know, the soldier of the soldier's wife, because my, my grandfather wasn't married. Um, and Jimmy. Um, and I think he's the guy who introduced my grandparents because my grandmother met my grandfather in that ward at that bed uh, in the 4-3 Pat Hospital where she came to visit the person who was in the bed next to him. Mm. So I'm pretty sure the guy in the blue is the one who introduced um, my grandparents. But wow. that's where that came from. Yeah. And then the Charleston scandal. Uh, the Charleston scandal. This is the book I'm working on at the moment. It's set in 1920s London. Which Pamela just got the book deal for about two weeks ago. Yay! Yes, it was a long, a long journey to get that deal um, because it's not a World War I novel, so it's a bit different from what I had been doing before. Um, and I had read, in the course of doing research for the other books, that's often where the historical ones come from, I'm doing research for one book and I come across an idea or something that really happened and you go, oh, that'll make a great book. Um, and I came across a story about Lady Edwina Mountbatten, that's Lord Louis Mountbatten's wife, um, had been photographed doing the Charleston with Fred Astaire. And it was a terrible scandal, 1923, <laughs> terrible scandal that she'd been doing. First of all, the Charleston, which was a very low-class dance because black people did it, and also dancing with an actor. And I thought it would be better if it was an actress, because I write about women, um, and she should be dancing with the Prince of Wales. Uh, so that's the, the scandal at the centre of uh, the new book. Mm. Brilliant, thank you. Alison, what's this, the night sky? Okay, so my, um, my story ideas tend to come from, and it's a, you know, everyone's always like, oh, you know, ideas come from everywhere. And I go, and I go to schools and I talk to kids all the time about this. Ideas are everywhere. Mm. And it's just a, it's that whole thing of training yourself to see those ideas and hear those ideas when you come across them. So the Mapmaker Chronicles... Um, came, it, it, all my books come from like a, a question and a feeling. Now, the Mapmaker Chronicles came from the feeling that you have when you stare out into the night sky. And it was because I was standing out in the night, out the backyard with my poor, long-suffering nine-year-old son, um, dragged him out for a mother and son bonding moment, you know, as one does. Um, and I'm standing there like, this is beautiful, the stars are twinkling, there's a warm breeze blowing, there's little crickets doing their thing, he's going to remember this forever. He turns to me and, you know, he's a fan of the head-hurting question, which, you know, has not got any better. He's now 15 and he still does my head in, but that's another story. Um, and he turned to me and he said, Mum, how far does space go? And when you're staring out at that and you start to think about where the edges are and what might be at the edges, and if you have the kind of mind that I have, it takes you into some very strange places. <laughs> so I said to him, well, you know, nobody knows. And we went in and Googled it, because that's what you do when you're a mum, right? Um, but that was one night, and then the next night we were, and if we have the next slide, that would be great. The next night we were um, 
talking about a horrible... He was reading a book, a horrible histories book. I don't know if any of you guys are... Yes, fantastic. So many entertaining ways to die in a horrible histories book, right? <laughs> so we're reading a book about explorers and he sort of says to me, Mum, have they mapped the world? And it wasn't such a weird question, that one, or head hurdy, because I've always loved antique maps and I have a couple... I drag my poor children through dusty old mapping exhibitions all the time, so they are well aware of the mapping thing. And I said, well, they had to go. You know, they had to get in their ships. They had to sail out into endless oceans. Pretty sure they were going to die in some entertaining way for us, not for them. Um, and then I sort of had that thing of like... And I said to him, well, they would have felt exactly the same way that we feel when we stare out into space. They didn't know where the edges were. They didn't know what was at the edges. And those two things came together in my mind and all of a sudden I, I had this 14-year-old boy waving at me going, hi, I'm Quinn, I remember everything. I really don't want to get on a ship to go and map the world. And the Mapmaker Chronicles came from that. So two conversations, 220,000 words later, here we are. <laughs> um, now, the Adaban Cypher novels were a similar thing. Um, the, I read a newspaper article about the Voynich Manuscript, which is a very, very old book. They think it's 15th century. It was found in an attic in Poland about 100 years ago. The, the actual article I saw was the 100-year sort of anniversary. And the thing that fascinated me about it was that no one had ever been able to read it. Mm. It's written in a language that no one had, you know, ever seen, and they had all these incredibly smart people trying to crack the code of what this book could possibly be. And my question to myself, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, why would you write a book that no one can read? Mm. You know, what could it possibly, possibly be? And the other thing that drove that story was... Um, so this is a page from the Book of Kells, and I went to... I've seen the Book of Kells twice. I've seen two pages because they only open one page a day, so you've pretty much got to go, you know, every day for a year to see the whole thing. I've seen two pages. I've been to Ireland twice, and I just remember the feeling every time I sort of stood in front of it, of just wanting to reach in. I just wanted to... I wanted yeah. to own it. Yeah. I wanted to take it home with me and just have it. I didn't, no, I didn't even know what I wanted to do with it. I just wanted to have it, you know? And that feeling when I was writing my, my novel about the Adaman Cipher, that feeling drives a lot of the story in the sense that there are a lot of people who want this book. They don't know what it means. They can't read it either, but they want it. And so Gabe, you know, has this massive thing of having to keep, you know, having to keep it out of their hands. So yeah, so questions and feelings. I listen very hard when the questions keep coming back to me. Great. Candice, where do you get your freaky ideas from? <laughs> um, yeah, so with crime novels, I think, for me, I've just got to come up with two things and then I can go. And one of them is the protagonist, the investigator, what is their major personal problem? You know, so when I was writing Gone By Midnight, for example, it was book three of a series, so I already had Ted's major personal problem, which is that he has been accused of a terrible crime against a 13-year-old uh, girl, so he's like a, a sort of a Dennis Ferguson type, you know, he, he's very recognisable, everybody hates his guts, it's very hard for him to live. Um, so I just needed a crime and I was sort of, I had it in the back of my mind, I wasn't really focusing on it, but my husband and I were at the local IGA and um, he, was, he was off um, doing his, his thing and I was in the fruit and veggie section and... Um, uh, I saw this woman at the counter, like, I got this feeling that every, that something was going on, like, a, you know, there's a drama. And I looked up, this woman was at the counter, and she was, she burst into tears, 
and everyone was looking at her, and I couldn't quite see what was, hear what was going on, but she was doing this. She was like, oh, you know, this high and, and around here somewhere, and everyone was watching, and I, I looked down, and there was this little, like, little boy, like a two, one or two-year-old boy, and he's looking up at me like, you're not my mum. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, I'm not a very tactful sort of person. Uh, I'm not very subtle. So when I see an opportunity to be the hero of a situation, I, <laughs> you know, so I picked the boy up and I lifted him up in the air like a baboon in the Lion King. <laughs> and I was like, so cool. You know? <laughs> and I shouted out, there's a boy right here. And everyone turned around and the, and the lady went, oh, you know, and <laughs> kind of ran over and snatched the child off me very dramatically and was crying and stuff. And everybody was stomping their hooves and shaking their manes and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, you know what? Everyone got in on that. Yeah. Like, a missing child just stirs up everyone instantly. It stirred me up, you know. Uh, and I was like, okay, bang, missing child. You know, so I put those two concepts together to make um, Gone by Midnight. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, it's just stuff that happens to me in my life, you know. Um, like when I was writing Hades. Hades was my first published novel, and before then I had been writing stuff set in New York and Paris, and it was all vampires and <laughs> nothing that I'd really experienced, you know. Um, but Hades is about this guy who, he runs a tip. He's like an old ex-criminal overlord from, like, King's Cross, and he runs a tip, and that's kind of his retirement plan. He hides bodies in the tip for a fee. Um, some old people garden. He, he plants other things. Um, but I, at the time, I was living in Queensland, and I was living down in the rainforest, you know, because I was trying to be frugal. I was living in a kind of a shack, a snake-infested shack uh, in the rainforest. And, and we didn't have any um, rubbish collection, and so we had to collect all our rubbish and drive it to a place in the rainforest where this guy had all these skip bins, and you would give him five bucks and you could throw your rubbish in. <laughs> And he was just such an interesting person to me. He was sort of short and fat, and he had a greasy ponytail and half-moon glasses, and he would, like, look at the car as you went in to see if there were any sort of treasures or anything. Like, and in my family, we would call that a scab because <laughs> when I had so many kids in my family, you know, we used to do the clean-up, and if we had to go to the tip, we would go around the tip and find treasures and stuff, and we were quite proud scabs or scabbers. And so, so I knew this scabby old guy, and, uh, and he, he ran a tip, and I was like, I'm just going to take that guy and put him in a basket, and then, you know, I might write a book about that one day, I might not, you know, um, and that's where that book emerged from. It starts with him and his tip, and, uh, yeah. It goes from there. When do you, I mean, because obviously you've all got the idea from somewhere, and you think, oh, that's a good idea, but we all get ideas... <laughs> you know, fairly often, when do you know it's, this is a book? Because an idea is a great idea, but it's not necessarily 80,000 words or 100,000 words. When do you know it's a book? Or do you just know? Um, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. For me, um, I guess there's got to be, because I write short stories as well, Yeah. Um, there's got to be more than one idea. So, uh, like you putting the two things together. Mm. Um, one idea is a short story, um, but you've got to have a and but 
you know, this happens, and but there's also this happening. Hmm. Um, otherwise, you, it's not, it won't support the weight of that many words, you know. And, and of course, you've got to, when you're actually writing it, you've got to have a lot of and buts, a lot of complications, a lot of things happen. Um, but mostly I think it's the weight of it inside you mm. that tells you that it's a book rather than a short story. You know, mm. short stories are light. Uh, even dark short stories, even kind of sad short stories, um, they, they float fairly, fairly lightly for me. Um, the books, are, uh, they're, they're weightier in... I have no idea whether that makes any sense or not. But it's a feeling. But it's a feeling, mm. yeah. Um, I don't know until I've written it. I, which is a really you mean bad, until you it's a really start, bad way to started do it. writing it. No, until no, it's until it's done. Till it's finished. <laughs> really? Yeah, but the, oh my god! And then and then sometimes I write it and think, oh, actually, this is three books, not just one book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't tend to write short stories. Like I've just actually started writing some some short stories because I've never really thought in short stories. So. Um, like with the Mapmaker Chronicles, I knew it had to be big because it, we're going around the world in a sailing ship. You're not going to do that in 2,000 words. So I think it's um, the size, the stakes. The stakes tell me if it's a, if it's a book or not. Um, and, the, you know, and the stakes need to be high. The stakes need to be big. And sometimes, you know, like I've just finished writing a manuscript and I've realised as I'm reading over it and I'm editing it, uh, the stakes aren't... I, I, I need to actually do some serious reworking of it because the stakes aren't high enough. And so I've got 65,000 words, but it's not a book at the moment right. because the structure and the stakes aren't there. Words. Well, it's a great story. It's yeah. just not a book yet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think there needs to be an immediate problem because new writers or aspiring authors say, to me, say stuff to me all the time and there's no problem. Like, they'll say to me, oh... My book is about how humanity, right, has moved to Mars because, you know, we've ruined Earth and everything, and now we're on Mars. And it's like, well, what's the problem? (laughs) And in crime crime novels, it's easy because you go, oh, four boys were left alone in a hotel room by their parents. When the parents come check, one of them is missing. There's the problem, you know. Um, But it can be, like... If you, if you did a tweet, I think you're ready for it when you, if you do a tweet-length version of the book and people go, oh, man, that would suck. Like, you know, like um, a, a tiger has got loose in an airport and everybody's locked in the airport. Oh, oh shit. You know, like that's, that's a problem. That's Hashtag, a, oh, shit. Yeah, that, that's the problem, you know. And you go, OK, there's a book in that. Um, I want to see all the things that they try to do to solve that problem and then at the end they finally do and that's a book. Mm. Great and advice. Then, but you've also got to go, and why should we read about this person in this the This person doing it, right? yeah. yeah. We're not actually reading about the tiger. We're reading about the people. Yeah. So how can I make the people who are going to be in that airport interesting enough to sustain past the, oh, God, there's a tiger moment? Yeah. And the easiest way to do that is to have someone really unsuited to solving yes. the problem. Like Unpowered. You go, the people who are going to solve the problem of the tiger in the airport are a group of three ladies in their 70s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you go, you are really unsuited to catching that thing and saving the day, so I want to figure out how you're going to do it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So not Bear grills or... 
Yeah, really? well, because you just go, oh, I can oh, see that. I yeah. can see. Even better if there's a Bear grills to start with and he gets taken Yeah, out. he gets yeah. eaten. Yeah. 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 Much better. Fantastic. Yeah. This is getting really good. We should write this. Yeah, you should write this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this next question I might ask you, Pamela, because you deal with hundreds of our students at the Australian Writers' Centre as the Director yeah. of Creative Writing. And many of them are here today. And many of whom are here today. Um, <laughs> Uh, writing can be a very isolating experience. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you think people should go to find the help they need or the support that, you know, to have a drive? Sure. Well, obviously, I'm going to say come to me. Um, <laughs> come to me. Because, uh, selfishly, because one of the most exciting things in the world is starting with somebody as a new writer, like a, a baby writer who's never actually finished a short story or anything, and taking them all the way through to publication with a major publisher, which we have done over and over and over again, and some of those people are in this room. Hi, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but uh, so I think classes are great, but it's about finding your tribe. Um, you can write at home. Most books are written at home, you know. Um, but who do you get to read your work? I am a huge proponent of workshopping. I've been workshopping since I was 14. And um, giving it to your friends or your loved ones, you don't learn anything. They come back and say, oh, yeah, it's really good. Or else they go, oh, yeah, I couldn't really get into it. And that doesn't help you. You know, you need people to workshop with or to give you advice who actually know about writing. Mm. Um, so classes with us, great. We love taking people from the, the stage one all the way through to the six-month novel writing class. Uh, and we obviously have genre classes like, you know, the one that Candice teaches. Um, but also look for your local library to see if there's a writing group there. Uh, go online. If you have been one of our students you can connect with other people on the Facebook group and try and find critique buddies. If you're a romance writer, Romance Writers of Australia is a fantastic organisation in terms of setting people up for critiquing. Um, so it's about finding your tribe and um, finding those people who can say to you, well, the reason your friend couldn't get into it is because the story doesn't actually start till Chapter 3. Mm. Um, because, you know, you, you're, you, the first thing that actually happens is halfway through Chapter 3 and the rest of it is just info dumping mm. and you need to pull that out and scatter it through the rest of the manuscript as you're reading it. You know, that's the sort of back, the feedback that you need to get. And you really can only get that from people who've thought about writing and who have some of the same ideas, like terms. Knowing what an info dump is is a really useful thing, you know. Um, and, and so you need to find those people. And obviously that's one of the reasons Val set up the centre in the first place, I think, is, mm. is to give people somewhere to go. Mm. But there are, you know, there are other places that do that too. But obviously, you know, we spend a good proportion of our lives, either from my point of view, either designing the courses that people take or teaching them. And... I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't believe that that was a worthwhile thing to do. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think that we were actually helping people to become better writers. But sometimes I think the, the thing that we do for our students that matters more than anything else is we take people seriously. Mm. Yeah. We take your desire to be a writer seriously and we take your story seriously. <laughs> 
And I think sometimes that helps with the, you know, the day job thing. Mm. You need somebody to take you seriously if you're going to say, no, I'm not going out today, I'm going to work on my novel. You need to take it seriously yourself and to give it priority because it will not write itself. Mm. <laughs> no. mm. Number one reason your book won't be published is that you haven't written it. In addition to, in addition to taking... Um, writers seriously. It's about being supportive and it's about actually believing that it's possible for them yes. to get published, that they will get published. Yes. Um, because I transitioned from being an accountant into being a writer, I experienced many different writing communities around Sydney and, you know, I also travelled interstate for certain workshops and things as well. And one of the things that I absolutely hated and I knew from day one when I started the Australian Writers' Centre 14 years ago that I would never, ever do... One of the things that I hated was this whole depressing attitude. Oh, my God, it's, it's so, so hard, hard to get published. Oh, oh my God, it's impossible yeah. to get published. Oh, my God, you will never get past the slush pile. I've never believed that in anything that I've done. And it's proof that every single week we will get an email or excited phone call or... <laughs> sometimes gifts, um, <laughs> saying, oh, my God, I've just got a book deal every single week because yeah. we actually do believe you can get published. And, and if you surround yourself with people who are negative, you will believe, too, you will never get published. True. And the other thing to remember is that writing remains just about the only area uh, in entertainment, in the kind of wider sense of entertainment, where all you need to do is write a good book that's... Con that's commercially publishable. You know, like, you don't need to know anybody. You don't need to have a, a degree. You don't need to have special connections. You just have to write. You don't need to look like a model. You don't need to look <laughs> like a model. You don't need to be of any particular ethnicity or gender. Um, you know, you, you just need to write a book that's good enough. There are some ugly authors out there. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> there we are. But there's also some very untalented ones. Oh, yeah. You read their books and you just go, if that can get published, I can get published. <laughs> it's so true. Some and Candice's attitude has taken her far. So <laughs> listen to Candice. That's, that's your evidence, right? It's true. So we do get um, contacted every week from our students yeah. saying they've got their book deal. And this is just an example of one, Margaret Morgan. I mean, you know Margaret's story better than I do. anyone. I um, do. Margaret was a student in our six-month novel writing class um, and she wrote... This is a science fiction novel, but it's being published as a kind of literary novel like Handmaid's Tale kind of thing. M um, Margaret is currently this weekend at Continuum, which is a big uh, convention in Melbourne for speculative fiction. She's one of the key speakers there this weekend. Um, and I said to her, you have to go to festival for speculative fiction and start pitching, you're ready, go for it. And she literally bumped into uh, a, an editor from Penguin Random House, but she was ready. I had got her to get her pitch ready. She, her manuscript was ready to go. It had gone through a number of drafts. Uh, and the editors who go to those festivals, they go because they're looking for new talent. That's mm. what they're there for. So they're willing to listen to you pitch, but you've got to have that pitch ready. ready. And she pitched, and Lexi, Lex Hurst said, great, send me a synopsis in 50 pages. Here's my card. That's a solicitation. You know, they go, no unsolicited manuscripts. When somebody hands you their card, that means you're being solicited. Um, two... Uh, and, Three days later, she got a call saying, send me the rest of the manuscript. Two weeks later, she had a contract. 
And she's now um, turning this into a, a mini-series mini as well. Yeah. So, um, and she ended up in a workshopping group with five people from her course, um, and four out of five of them have book deals. Yeah, so one of, one of the ones this week, I saw three new books from, or, from students of mine. One of them was Petronella Nicholson's Six mm. Minutes, which is just about to hit the shelves. Um, and because that's one of the things we do recommend is that you keep workshopping with the people that, that you meet in the classes or in your courses. Uh, keep on workshopping and keep doing those drafts. So this is Mandy Foote and she, got, she did writing picture books and she now has a publishing deal with Hachette. Shelley Unwin has now written six picture books after doing the course. Catherine Pelosi has written a picture book and a middle grade book. This is Quark's Academy. Astrid Schultz just had her book launch in Melbourne and before that she had it in New York because um, her publisher is launching it in America as well. Kanina May is releasing this this month, I think. Um, Sarah Bailey has written the, those two books, Into the Night and The Dark Lake. She did our creative writing course and now her third book in this series is being released in August. Joanna Nell, who's sitting over there, very talented author, and her incredible, her incredible book, The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. Highly recommended. Um, yeah, highly recommended. Uh, also did our course and is now um, going great guns. And she also is, you know, uh, has a day job. She is a GP. <laughs> so she wrote this after hours as well. <laughs> but it is a matter of, I truly believe, whether you, you do courses with us or anywhere else, it doesn't matter, it's about finding people with the right attitude. Because if you hang around people who will tell you all the time you'll never get published, guess what? You'll never get published. The other mm. thing is to look out for people who tell you there's only one way to do it. Mm. You must write yeah. like me. Mm. That's just wrong. It's just, it's nonsense. But I've heard it from people who've done courses... Um, my husband did one, uh, and he ended up leaving that, that course going, oh, well, I guess I'm not a writer then because I don't write like her. Um, so don't ever believe anybody who tells you you've got to do it like me. Mm. All right, so a lot of people say uh, things like, I know I want that I want to write, and I have a lot of half-formed ideas, and I bet a lot of people can relate to that, right? They're not fully formed, but they're half-formed. <coughs> um, but I'm not sure which of my half-formed ideas to pursue. Where do I spend my time? I've got so many um, options. Uh, what, which one should I choose? What do you think? Candice, maybe you start. Um, yeah, I think... you. Sometimes people get really stuck on an idea and they're just obsessed with it and it's, mm -hmm. not, it's it, you know, it, it's not workable. I think you need to find out what it is you like about that idea, really. You know, if you're writing about the humanities all moved to Mars, you know, um, that one, for example, perhaps it's, it's the theme of, like, change and being in a new environment and trying to find your way and, like, just, just find out what is it about that that interests you. You know, um, in the crime genre, you might be thinking, oh, I really want to write you know, a Madeleine McCann-type story, um, but I can't do that, you know, because I'll be stepping on the family of Madeleine McCann and that kind of thing. And, and you just have to pick out of that. What is it about the Madeleine McCann case that really compelled you? Is it the story of, like, a mother and everyone accusing a mother? You can take the seed of whatever it is 
Um, yeah, and sometimes if you've got two fully, like two half-formed ideas, I think, because I'm always combining and mashing things together, mm. you know, um, and uh, is, it, is it, ask yourself, is it possible to mash them together? To What's an example one? I don't know. You, well, I mean, you might you might do the. I want to do Madeleine McCann, but I want to do we've all moved to Mars. You know, so you can <laughs> yeah. take the. You, no, but you can take Excellent the whole. Um, I'm I'm a mother and I'm public enemy number one because everyone thinks that I've done something terrible and I've moved. I've moved to a new city, you know, planet or whatever, <laughs> and I'm trying to work my way into that community. You know, like take what it is that interests you. Be, be flexible enough to say I'll drop the whole Mars thing and make it bigger, you know? <laughs> like, Similar. You know, I'll drop the whole child abduction thing and I'll just make it, you know, a squid woman who's moved to Mars and she's just... You know what I mean? You know, if the tiger... Yeah, I would bring in the tiger. No, no, no. Like, like if, if the child went missing and everybody assumed the tiger had eaten the baby... Yeah. <laughs> Shh, don't listen. All right, so mash, <laughs> potentially mash your ideas up, if, especially if you've maybe even um, thinking of two different genres. Should I write romance? Should I write crime? Maybe you can combine those two. And strip, strip the idea down to its bare bones and see what you can do with it then. Okay. Yeah. The, and also, <laughs> I would say don't ignore your best ideas because you think they're too hard or they're not oh, what yeah. you do. I spent a long time writing what I thought I should write, a long time writing what I thought made sense for me to write because of, you know, who I was and where I was and what I was doing. And then, you know, I had this random idea about map makers and I thought, wow, that'd be an awesome story. And I did not one single thing with it mm -hmm. because it was like, well, what do I write for children? I've got no idea how to write a series. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to begin. I'm going to complete what I'm doing over here. I'm going to keep writing that story, which was the right thing to do because you should finish stuff, right? Finishing is good. But then it got to the point where I realised that that idea, that random idea about map makers, about this race to map the world and this kid that just didn't want to go. Because you know what? When you don't want to be there, when you're out on a ship, pretty sure you're going to die every single day and you want to be at home, you've got a massive problem every single day. Mm. And that is awful for your character, but awesome for, your, for me as a writer. So it was kind of like it, was, it came down to an actual conversation with my agent who was like, oh, you know, because I was working on something. She goes, what else are you doing, you know? You don't have anything for kids, do you? Because they're looking for middle grade. I'm like, oh, I've got this random idea about map makers. She goes, well, send me a synopsis. And I'm like, well, you know, I can't do that. I have to write the whole thing. <laughs> so I sat down and wrote the whole first draft in six weeks. And it was, A, the best and most fun thing that I had ever written because it was just like... God, what have I been doing all these years? This is so much fun. Um, and it was also the best thing I'd ever written because the idea was so strong but and I was so into it. I reckon that was it. It, it came easily, though, because it had had time to Yeah, I guess away maybe it had been so subconsciously. You make, yeah. yeah, you make an important point about how fun it should be. Yes. Mm. Because it, if it's fun and enjoyable for you to write, it'll be fun and enjoyable to read. Yeah. 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 If you're writing to the market and going, oh, vampires are hot right now, I should write that just because I might get published, I'll get through the door. But you're not enjoying it, that's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. that's true. The only exception I would say to that is that sometimes memoir can be hard. Yeah. You know, if you're going back to difficult times in your own life and you're writing directly about them, yeah. that can be hard. Yeah, that's true. But worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, then, um, Alison just mentioned that she couldn't actually provide the synopsis. <laughs> 
straight away because she had to write the whole book because she's a pantser, right? Mm. Um, so should you plot or should you plan is a question that many writers um, talk about. And, in fact, if you have a look at this, this is J.K. Rowling's uh, spreadsheet for, I think, the fifth Harry fifth Potter book. book. Yeah. Um, and she's she obviously, certainly by the fifth book, got to the stage where she was playing it within an inch of its life. Yeah. Um, Pamela, and maybe you can start. What do you do? Depends on the book. So with some books, I know exactly what's going to happen. Absolutely, scene by scene almost. And with other books, I have no idea. Um, and I think this is... I had to learn that. You know, I tried to do um, the, a letter from Italy, the one that Brooke has got in her bag... Um, I tried to do that the way I had written every other book up until then, which was having a very clear idea about where I was going and, uh, and starting at the beginning and going all the way through, and it just didn't work. Um, and I was stuck for a long time, and I thought, what would I tell my students? You know, if someone came to me with this problem, what would I tell them? And I thought I would tell them to throw it. If, they, if your process isn't working, try a new process. Um, and so I wrote that completely out of order. Mm. And then in the next, you know, you need an extra draft that way. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's very much about there is no right way. It's mm. very much about what the book needs. Mm. And it's so true. There is no right way. If you're doing one, one way and it's not working, just try another way. Just try another way. There's not just one way. Yeah. Alison? Um, yes, yeah, so well, we've discussed the fact that I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time, <laughs> which is fine. Um, but uh, what I have discovered... So I, st I still work the same way. I still have, oh, I've got this random idea about whatever, and I sit down and I start writing it. But I have learned over the process of writing six books, and I think that this is the thing too... You're never going to write a book the same way that I write a book. We all write books differently. And I think the key to it is learning how you write a book and what's going to work best for you. So the first map maker was just whoosh, let's go, and off we went, and it was awesome. When I did the second book, it was um, the middle of the trilogy. And anyone who has ever followed me on social media will know how much I hate the middle of the book because it's, you know, that you're carried away with momentum for the first bit. Mm. You know where you're basically going, but you've got probably 30, like when you're doing middle grade, probably around 30,000 words to get through. Mm. Now, when you're doing a trilogy, the first book is your, you know, woohoo, off we go. Then you've got a whole book that is just the middle of the book, and then you're down into the ending. And I knew exactly what was going to happen at the end of this series, but I knew I had to get there. And what happened was, and this taught me some serious lessons, and I, I like to discuss this at length when I go to school talks, was I started the second book in exactly the same way. Off I went, off we went, it was awesome. The book was going beautifully. I had Quinn down a hole in the jungle. It was terrifying. There were bad guys at the top. There were steep walls. He had no idea how to get out. Awesome scene. And then I realised I had no, no idea, idea how to get him out. Yeah. I had no idea. You I'm like, oh, God, I have put myself <laughs> in a hole, literally, literally here. And then poor old Procrasty Pup, who is having a birthday today. Aww. Aww. Birthday for Crusty Pup. Poor old Procrasty Pup and I must have walked 50K while we tried <laughs> to work out how we were going to get Quinn out of this hole. And I finally figured it out, but what it required me to do was, before I could go forward, I had to go back to the start of that particular manuscript, seed a few things in, 
off we went. Yeah. It taught me a lesson, though. And I think you're only ever going to do that once to yourself, particularly when you have a deadline like I had. Um, and that is that, you know, sometimes you've got to write that first 10 to 15,000 words, get that momentum going, get it out of your head, then have a little think about what might happen next, because otherwise you will write yourself into corners. Or if you're happy to do that, you know, just be prepared for the fact you're going to throw words out. You know, yeah. and I and I throw words out all the time. Yeah. People yeah. hurt for me, but we've it's just part of my process. We've just thrown it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I threw thirty thousand. I threw thirty-five thousand out at the start of this current one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look at us, yeah, we should yeah. get around. That's, and it's great, but it's very freeing. They're crying on the inside. Yeah, I just yeah. want Actually, you to know. I couldn't really afford <laughs> I felt really good about it because it wasn't worth it. Is my mic still know? on? Yeah, your so, mic's still on. Yeah, we can hear you. So, sorry, I talked over you there. No, 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 I just, I can't hear the echo. I can now. Um, yeah, so throwing that 35,000 words away actually made me feel great because yeah. it, it was turning into a very grim story. And I didn't, I've had a lot of grimness in my life over the last 12 months. I just didn't want to live in the grim, you know. And now it's going to be happy and light and funny. And um, writing, it's going to be tricky. But, uh, yeah, I felt great about throwing that away. I showed my 30 again. to my agent <clears throat> and, um, and I said, what do you think of it? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, there's a certain pitch at which you say yeah where you mean no. <laughs> yeah, she was like, yeah. She was like, yeah. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> but you actually plot your books. Yeah, you plot So how did so you end you? up in this mess? So Maddie? this is an example. Um, well, you tell us what it's an example of. Well, this is my current one. Um, and I wrote the outline because I had gone into those 30,000 words without an outline. And it ended up flat and boring. And so I went into the wilderness of the Blue Mountains. Uh, I was in a cabin in the forest and it, I... If I'd screamed, no one would have heard. Were you by yourself? Yes. It, it Why did you me. go to a well, the Because I just didn't. I wanted to. I wanted to like focus. You know, I was mainly just focused on staying alive and not being <laughs> killed by a boogeyman. Um, but yeah, so this um, this is an example of how you could do it. Like I I, I shift perspectives, and I, those those aren't chapter numbers. They're just like scene numbers or whatever. And day one, night, Friday is really important to me because um, what my editor said to me one time when I wrote a book, she goes, you know what, like chronologically from the first book in this series to now, you've written the whole book as it being winter, it should be summer. <laughs> and I was like, for the person, for the fan who writes to me and says chronologically from the start of the series, you know, the weather is wrong, I will, I will give them a hundred bucks because if, <laughs> I said to the editor, if anyone is as nerdy and involved in this as you, then, you I, I have been that for some books, though. Yeah. 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 You, you know what? Global warming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so, James Patterson and I, when we work together, we have to do out. This is a, one of our... This is our first Harry novel together. Um, and we, we work like this. He likes really, really long outlines. Um, so, when you say one and two, what is that? Chapter one? That's or chapter one, chapter okay. two. But, I mean, we're not strictly... Sure. Like, it might get split in half or whatever. Um, and there's things like, oh, you know, the, the van's got a crack back window. Clue. This is a clue. Um, and, and, yeah, I find writing outlines really comforting because... Once you've got it out of your head and onto a piece of paper, the roadmap, you can then go, oh, is there a better way to go? 
you know, is there something more exciting? Um, because that was your first idea mm. that you put down. And now you can go, well, you know, I can see that mm. through 25% of this book or, you know, one page of the outline, there are no, like, twists. So that's going to be dull. You can look at the book as a, as a, as a blueprint um, if you outline. Uh, I never used to do it. And, and then Jim was like... You know, Jim he, as in James Patterson. James Patterson. He, um, he, our outline is like seventeen thousand words. Wow. You know, um, but he is one of those per- people who likes to look as a, at the blueprint and go, "This bit here is not exciting enough. Not exciting enough. Not exciting enough." And that's his um, priority is the excitement factor. Mm. You know. Um, so, so speaking yeah. of Jim. Because uh, <laughs> we're all on, on a first name <laughs> basis with him now, right? Tell us. Because um, you've now written how many books with Jim? <laughs> We've written five. Five and books. And a novella. Right, five this books. This book isn't out yet. It's coming out in August. So how did that happen? Because he lives where? Florida. He lives in Florida. So tell us how this collaboration came about, because wouldn't we all like to become <laughs> a number one New York Times bestseller? Um, I think it might have happened in this room. I'm not sure. It was a, a cocktail party at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and they said to me, oh, they gave me an invitation, come to this night where James Patterson is. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm Like, just to be excited, to be invited to the party, you know? <laughs> and I'm quite cheeky. I said to my publisher, um, how does a person get to collaborate with James Patterson? I think I'd like to do that. And she was like... There's a list, <laughs> like well above you, because my third novel had just come out, and I still felt like, oh, who the hell am I, you know? Um, and so I said, uh, I'm just going to go to this party and have like a fan moment with him, because I read a lot of inappropriate material when I was a kid. Like my my dad worked shock in, me. In, in prisons. <laughs> my dad worked in prison, so he had those law enforcement magazines that are only supposed to be law enforcement because they got really gory, like autopsy photos and stuff in that them. That explains so oh, it's much. It's all coming to yeah. the... Yeah, really. And I used to go into my mum's room and read all the true crime. My friends at primary school were reading the um, Chronicles of Narnia and they were like, oh, my God, the Chronicles of Narnia are so great. And I was like, you'll never believe what I read last night. <laughs> I read about the murder of this girl named Shanda Shearer and they, it took 10 hours to murder her and they did this to her and they did that and they did this and I made all my little friends cry. Uh, back to James Patterson. Back to James Patterson. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, oh, I want to go up to him and say hi. So I, I dressed to the nines and I put my heels on and got my hair done, $300 hair, you know, and all this. And I just went up to him and I said, hey, um, <laughs> I pushed a lot of important people out of the way. There was like a huddle, and you know when other people are waiting and you're like, no, no don't, because I'll, you know, and I got in there and I said, hello, um, my name's Candice and I'm a writer and I, I write crime and I think you might have had a lot to do with that. And I said, um, I read Kiss the Girls when I was 12 years old and it just changed my life. And he goes, wow, that's really inappropriate. <laughs> What was your mum doing when you were reading Kiss the Girls at 12 years old? And I was like, don't even start. (laughs) You know, with the foster kids and the trash picking. And my mum, a couple of years ago, legally changed her name to Ocean Mermaid. (laughs) So it's like, don't even. We don't have enough time. Um, And then, yeah, so my publisher saw us... Um, getting on really well and she said oh because she was trying to gear herself up to go and say hello to him and um and and so 
she gave him a book of mine in like a gift pack for him to take home and he read it on the plane home to Florida. And he was like, oh, yeah. Great. You wanna... yes. So you can push in and say hello. Push people out of the way, I but think yeah. is the basic. No, no. <laughs> she could have pushed all she liked. It was the work that counted. Yes, when he yeah, did it, it was, on the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got to push really a little bit too because otherwise he doesn't get the work. Well, that's true. Mm. So then what happened? Did he contact you? Did you contact the, you know? Yeah, no, he, he contacted story? my publisher. Right. He said... I just read um, Hades and I really loved it. Would she want to collaborate with me? And then they contacted me and I, they said, hey, she said, would you want to think about uh, working with James Patterson? And I was like, oh, see what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty busy. Check my calendar. Moment, I'm like, I'll check my calendar. I said I'll check my calendar or something like that. It was real smart-ass shit. Now, be <laughs> before... Candace was slumming it with Jim, <laughs> James Patterson and Bill Clinton. She, you've got to understand that before she got Hades published, she had over 200, correct, rejections? Yeah. I stopped counting at 200 because it was just a bit depressing. Stopped counting at 200. So, a question for all of you, but maybe we'll start with you since you did the 200 rejections. Mm. How do you keep going when you get rejected, or not even rejected, you don't even hear back, get them to, you know, hear yeah, back yeah. Actually, somebody, a, a, a big publisher in um, Sydney rejected Hades um, 12 months after it had hit shelves. <laughs> and I was like, I can tell you where to get that. I'm just about to accept an award for that. <laughs> you can, um, so, so how do you get through rejection? Um, try not to get angry. I was really, really angry, and, and I felt like, you know... Publishing, being a published author, it's like this club, and uh, a really cool club. And I can see through the window. I can see everyone who's in there, and they're having a great time in there. And I'm like, how did she get in there? And how did he get in there? You know. <laughs> and it's not like an orderly line out the front. It's just a mass crowd. And every time I get to the front, they say no. And I'm like, why? And they're like, they won't tell me. They're just like, get to the back, you know. <laughs> and bounced. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I really felt like it. After a while, you know, after like rejection 175 I was like it's personal it feels personal yeah. and I had horrible experiences like a publisher um, called me on the phone and she said oh you know really for me it, the book kind of lost it at the orphanage scene and I was like what orphanage scene <laughs> you know? like she wasn't even rejecting my book <laughs> she was just going down the list I think but, uh, yeah, try not to get angry because it really isn't personal. Um, now that I have known and met a lot of publishers and a lot of agents and that kind of thing, they are actually really actively looking for good work and and you don't really count that. Like, it's very rare that a publisher will say to me, the book's a bit, eh, but she's so good-looking and vivacious. <laughs> you know, I've never heard that. Um, you know, and uh, just keep ploughing on, just... Have realistic expectations for yourself. I just said I'm going to write a book a year and by the time I'm 75, <laughs> if I haven't got through, then maybe there'll be some kind of award for, like, most wow. rejected... Ever. You know, <laughs> most persistent um, or something like that, yeah. Okay. I'm just so... I'm in awe of you, Candice. <laughs> oh, I don't you. think I could have kept going, really. Oh. Um, uh, I don't like to know, be told no. I, yeah. <laughs> like that... Um, that helps. Okay, so my first book, my first children's book was rejected twice. My first adult book was rejected twice. Uh, fortunately, I had um, an agent at that time and 
she had first of all given me advice about how to rework it. So she was my workshopping person. Um, but it was lovely because they don't tell you it's been rejected until they've sent it to somebody else. So it's, oh, well, they didn't want it, dear, but I've given it to mm. so-and-so. And so having that support was great. Um, and the other thing to remember is that it, a rejection is not necessarily about the quality of the story. So quite often, like if, if for example, if you've written a crime novel and you submit it to Candace's publisher and they've got 12 slots of, for crime novels that they, they publish 12 a year, one a month, and all of those slots are filled by somebody like Candace. They're not going to bump her off to give you a go. They better not. Right? No. <laughs> would you take her on? I wouldn't. <laughs> but they're not, they're not going to go, okay, well, we'll get rid of this person who's been proved to sell for us in order to give this debut author a chance. They don't, it's a business. They don't do that. So if you get a rejection that says, I'm sorry, yeah, we really liked it, if you get anything other than thank you but no thank you, um, that's good. That's mm. a good sign. Mm. And if they say, we enjoyed the novel but it's not suitable for our publisher at, for our publishing schedule at this time, that's fantastic. You know, that's actually great. That's an enormous encouragement. Good rejection. Good, re but, but because they, they don't bother. There's mm. so much crap that goes into yeah. you know, that they read. Really, seriously, you've got no idea. Yeah. Um, that if they give you anything other than, yeah, we don't want it, uh, that's a really good sign and you should immediately give it to somebody else. Mm. Mm. Alison, were you rejected? Yes. I'm still rejected. I think that's the other really important thing to remember yes. too, is that even once you're published, even you can be published six times, if your story's not right, it's not right. That's right. And you have to, again, you have to go back to the not tasting it, taking it personally thing. But you also, and I think that this is the best possible advice I ever got from anywhere, and I don't even know who, who it was, one of the many bits of great advice, was just always be working on something. Yeah. Like, if, if you've got something out on submission... Be focused on something else. Don't be sitting there checking your emails 75 times a day, wondering oh, yeah. if the publisher's read it, doing all that kind of stuff. Mm, be working on something else because that way, at least, when the rejection comes, if the rejection comes, you've got something else ready to go. But also, There's always something else ready to go. And yeah. you're in it because you love writing. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what I, for me, it was always just like, I'm just going to keep writing stuff. Um, and, you know, because I got rejected... Um, a couple of times with adult novels. Um, I had one book that was accepted for publication, was going to be coming out, and then the editor that accepted it, you know, left the company. Once you lose your champion within a publishing company, it's very, very hard. Yeah. Um, and then it just sort of dropped off. It yeah. just fell off that the publishing schedule, and they decided in the end not to do it. Now, that was even worse than, don't call us, we'll call you, yeah. because they'd called me. I was there. I was at the front of the line. I was ready to cut the velvet rope. And then they were like, yeah, no, sorry, we've changed our minds. But by the time they did that, the Mapmaker Chronicles had been accepted for publication. So I think that's my, my message is always going to be, you're probably going to get rejected. Like, yeah. just brace yourselves because you will. But if you're always writing something, if you've always got something else, then you'll be at the point where you'll be like 200. You'll be like, oh, 200, what's that? Nothing. I'm ready for 201. The other thing is that... Um, Quite often we take like five years to write our first book. It's not uncommon. And if you are fortunate to, enough to get a, an acceptance, mm. they will then go, and we want the next book in a year. Yeah. And if you have not written anything, mm. yeah. you know, this is why second books are so often disappointing. Yeah. 
is because the, the first book took a long time and lots of drafts, and the second book just doesn't have the time. So you've got to start that second book yep. early, as early as you can, yep. to be ready for success. Yes. Yeah. And also, just one more thing. Nobody likes to hear the story of things like, you know, Adrian McKinty is a crime writer. It was the first draft of the first thing that he'd ever written. The first publisher he sent it through. Bang, he's through. Yeah. And, and when you hear that, you go, cool story, bro. Yeah. Thank you. Like, <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Like, you yeah. need yeah. A, like a... It's like Michael Robotham who sold on the first 11 pages and he hadn't even written the rest of the no. book. Nobody you know? wants to hear that. Really? I don't want to hear Talk it. Talk to me about that. I would rather hear that you went, you went on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I used to, when I was at uni, dream about being a, being a published author and I used to listen to Miley Cyrus's The Climb. <laughs> in the car, and I'm like, it's the climb. You know, it's not... You have to have some rejections and some hardship, and you have to earn it, I think. I've got a book out at the moment that's been rejected by five publishers so far. Um, uh, It's with a small press now. I've come down a level from the big press to the small press, uh, and every single one of them has told me the same. We love it. We love it, but we don't have to sell it. Mm. We don't know how to get the number of sales that we require... Of our, you know, for, of our publishing program, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's just touch briefly on to research uh, because some books require research and, mm. um, and the vast majority of books require some level of research to ensure that there's um, credibility and authenticity in what you're writing. So with that, do you think it's important to research it all before or kind of just write it, research it after to fill in the blanks? Um, or research during and and stop and start. Perhaps you can talk about your research process. And Pamela, um, you have a story about backstage. Yeah, so so I would say it depends what you're writing. Like, if you think you know about whatever it is you're writing, just start writing. But obviously in historical fiction, you know, there's a huge amount of research. Um, and I would typically do a good whack of it first, but then I'm continually looking stuff up as I go. This is the, um, the view from the stage of the Wyndham Theatre in London. Uh, and I was in London uh, last year for family reasons, and I took the opportunity to do some research for the Charleston scandal uh, because my characters are, um, are actors and had the opportunity... And you, if you don't ask, you don't get. I just found out who the manager of the Wyndham Theatre was, which was one of the theatres that was around in 1923 and hadn't been massively redone, um, and emailed him and said, please, you know, can, I'm writing this book. Can you, can you let me have a look behind the scenes? And he did that. Um, and it's really, it's really given a feel for the right, you know, that particularly the audition sequence, which opens the book where she's standing and the the theatre is empty except for the two people sitting in the front who are the director and producer. Um, So ask, you know, people are very, very... And the the key phrase is, um, I want to make sure I get it right. Mm. Yeah. Because people are sick of being misrepresented, Mm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, no, you go. Um, No, so, so that was 
so much fun, you know, going behind the scenes and seeing how it all works and the, and the green room. So I love research and I could easily go down a rabbit hole with every single book. Alison, what's your approach with research? Um, my approach with research is that generally the idea for the story comes out of a, something I've already got a passion for. I, I, I love medieval history, I love maps, I love old books, I love, you know, so my, if you kind of have a look at my quirky areas of interest, all of my middle grade fiction in particular, and I don't know why I never thought of writing that stuff before, like what was I doing? But anyway, um, so it comes from the passion and then the, and then the story drive, uh, then the story, go, I, I go with the story and then I do the research as I go. So if there's something I particularly need, like I'll just put insert mapping detail here mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll be like, oh, he's in a monastery, what did they look like? And I'll start researching, you know, where I want it to be. And the brilliant thing is you can like Google, there's a whole map of a monastery in blah, blah, and you can move your characters around that map, you know, quite easily. So the the passion for for the subject matter is first, and then the research for the details will come out of what I need for the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Candice, we're pretty clear that you would research some pretty wacky stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, but I'd like <laughs> <Research>. to <laughs> drill down to a particular um, encounter that you had. You mm. decided to correspond with a serial killer and mm. then request to meet him. Can you yeah, I just did. maybe tell us briefly about that? Well, it just ended up being really convenient to meet him because <laughs> I, Jim... Had said, come and have um, dinner with Bill Clinton and I in San Jose. Such a name dropper. Look at you go. I just like to sprinkle them around really casually. Throw those out like confetti. Super casual. Anyway, um, I was going to be in San Jose, which is only an hour and a half's drive to San Quentin where he was. So I said, can I come and see you? Because I'll have dinner with the president at night and I'll have breakfast with you. And he was like, yeah, great. So I had been writing to this serial killer just because he was the worst serial killer that I still, that I know of who is alive. And, like, all I do is research true crime because I love it. I'm, I'm, it's my bread and butter. I find it endlessly interesting. And so he said, why are you writing to me? And I said, you're just the worst living person that I can think of <laughs> in the whole world. Um, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be honest. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I went there. I went to San Quentin and I... Um, I had an experience that I wasn't really expecting because I thought when you go there, there'll be a window and they're like the phone type of thing. And like in had, the movies. Yeah, like in the movies. And they given me a handbook, which was a single piece of A4 paper, which had said, don't wear this and don't wear that, you know, so that if there's a riot, the watchtower men will know who to shoot. They'll go their inmates and their guests and their, you know. <laughs> and so I'd bought a new outfit just in case and all this. And um, so I got through the guards and the barking dogs and the watchtowers and all the fences and the clanging doors. And I got all the way to death row. Here I am on death row. And nobody tells you what to do. So I'm looking around. I'm like <laughs> the wandering. John Travolta gif. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> you know? And um, so they said... Uh, I said, which window is mine? Because um, I'm going to meet this serial killer at um, 8 o'clock. And they said, oh, actually, he's going to be in that cage there. And I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. It was like a shark cage, like floor-to-ceiling steel mesh cage with bulletproof glass all around the inside of it. And I'm looking for a chair to pull up to the cage, you know? Like, And I was like, where do I go? Do I just stand there like Clarice Starling type of thing? <laughs> and they said, no, you'll be in there. <laughs> And I was like, 
with him, same time with him. <laughs> and they said, wasn't it in the handbook? And I was like, no. <laughs> and not calling it a handbook is a bit of a stretch, if I'm honest. <laughs> like, at this point, like, that was not in there. And then... Um, and then, so, yeah, they put us in there and they, they bring him out and he's bigger than I expected. And I was like, oh, this is going well. And they, they put us in the cage together and they took the... They took the face to face. Yeah, like our knees were about that far apart. <laughs> and they uncuffed him and the guards shut the door and they padlocked it and then they walked away. And I was like... Is this protocol? <laughs> yes, it is. I was like, this is where I die. <laughs> and I thought, this is such going to make such good promo. <laughs> she died in a cage with a serial killer. She was going to meet the president that <sighs> night and, you know, and violent death and all this kind of thing. I thought, I'm not... The only sad bit is I'm not going to be around to enjoy it. And um, the sales. And... <laughs> the sales. And so, yeah. So, anyway, I had five hours in the cage with him. That five was hours? not in the handbook, the whole... It's the extended visit. Five it's hours? full contact visit. He said, so we're allowed to touch each other if you, you want. And, I, and, and he put his hand out and I was like... I'm so glad you made a gesture to indicate what kind of touching you meant because we can touch each other if you want is such an open... So what was <laughs> going to... St if something had occurred... I mean, he is a serial killer, right? Yeah. W what was going to stop him killing you? Well, so I get... When I get nervous, I tend to say exactly what is on my mind. So I said to him... <laughs> I said, um, so theoretically, I don't want to give you any ideas. <laughs> I said, theoretically, what happens if you lunge across the cage at me and try to bite my face off, like Hannibal Lecter type thing? <laughs> and as soon as I said Hannibal Lecter, I was like, no, why? <laughs> <laughs> Don't say Hannibal Lecter again. Like, if there's anyone to not say Hannibal Lecter to, it's this exact human being right here. And he goes, oh, um... Well, if you look outside the cage there on the ceiling, there's a cutout in the ceiling and there's a, um, there's a rifle man up there and if, if, you, if I lunge at you or something, um, he'll just shoot me. And I was like, okay, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> because he's going to have to shoot you through the cage. Like there's a slot in the bulletproof glass. He's like, I'm like, he's going to have to get it through the steel mesh, through the bulletproof glass, to get you, like, that's a really good shot. And then I said, because I was thinking to myself, if I do die, I don't want my last words, you know, in the, the New York Times article to be, she screamed, please, no. You know, um, I said, if you come over here, I'm going to go you. <laughs> so the guy is going to have to shoot you through the cage while that's happening, you know. I said, I will put you on your ass. All right. I can see why this took five hours because we haven't even got to start yet. Oh, yeah. And then my last thought was I didn't... Luckily, I didn't say it, but I thought, this is a new outfit. Like, if I to get... They're just going to blow his head all over this, this new outfit. <laughs> all right, so I'm and sure how do you clean that you that? will uh, be able to read various elements <laughs> of this story yeah. in yeah. Candace's upcoming books. My point was you just got <laughs> to do what interests you and then 
and then use it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever your passion may be, serial killers, old it. books, We're go gonna for it. Open up the floor very soon so that you can ask some questions. But before you do that, before we do that, I'd just like to remind you guys if you have been a little bit inspired by stories about serial killers about or stories about you know how to bring your ideas to life, I just want to remind you that this weekend is Furious Fiction. Furious Fiction. But for those of you who aren't familiar with Furious Fiction, we run it on the first week weekend of every month. It starts at five o'clock on Friday. So it started yesterday afternoon, but it doesn't matter. You can start today. And you have 55 hours, if you had started on Friday, to write 500 words. And uh, you enter by midnight Sunday and we choose a winner. And the winner gets $500. So if you want to enter, then go to furiousfiction.com.au and, um, yeah, have fun. It's a great lot of fun because it's only 500 words. So there's some little parameters that you need to follow and it's always great to see the talent that's out there. Do we have any people in here who've entered Furious Fiction before? Or are... yes, yes, I knew oh, you'd be here. <laughs> All right. Hopefully you're entering this month as well. Winners of the Furious Fiction. We do. Fiction. There's always a winner. Yeah. But there will be winners now because it's giveaway time again. So, oh, Beck, wow. if you can come and um, give Alison the uh, box, then we're going to draw. Now, you have to be here Am to I the barrel win. girl What's again? In you the are box? not only the barrel girl, but you're going to oh, show... That Wait a minute. Let me prepare myself for my barrel girl duties. We have oh, okay. two the book packs to give away. So I'm you doing do two names. You do have to be draw here. Me. So draw one first. You do have to be here, and if you're not here... I'm trying to make it dramatic. You, we're going to redraw. This is what barrel girls do. They make it dramatic. All right, I've got one. <clears throat> Martha? Okay, Martha Johansson. Martha Johansson. It's Martha Johansson here. Oh, oh there we go. Well done. Hey. Well Martha. done. And one more. Next one. Fantastic. And the next one is Karina Borman. Is Karina Borman? Oh, well, well done. Woo. Thank you, Alison. Cool. All right. So now, questions. If you have questions, we are going to we have uh, answers. run a microphone over to you. So does anyone have any questions? So one here, and then one over there, and then one over there, and then one over there. Okay, so let's start with Gabrielle. Thank you. That was the first hand up. Yeah. yeah. Um, mine was about the co-writing. So both yourself and um, have written. And I had an experience recently where I wrote more... Uh, it was more a business scenario but co-wrote with someone and what I really realised was the different styles of writing mm. but we had the same purpose. Mm. So I was just wondering what make, what, what's the benefit of writing with someone else and why, why would you go down that path instead of on your own? For me, um, it's excellent to write with Jim because he's so experienced and he can kind of go, oh, this isn't going to work or whatever. Like, he has different experiences to me, you know, and I sometimes say to him, oh, this person's coming off as a real jerk, you know. If you've just got someone there as, as, as a support system to bounce your ideas off, um, if you trust them and, you know. Um, it's kind of a cheat with Jim and I because... At any given moment, we are both hyper-aware of exactly who is in charge, which is obviously me. And so <laughs> any, like, arguments that we have, I just put my foot down. Um, yeah, clearly. Yeah. But, yeah, like, things like he influenced me about writing the outlines, and I now do that in my practice. So it's, um, it's, you can get good stuff out of that person. Um, but it's not to say that you don't have arguments and negotiations and... 
little huffs and things. Um, so it's good, yeah. I think also for Alison and I, in co-writing that book, um, it was half the work, mm. but also we mm. do have different areas of expertise and different passions that we're interested in. We, because we, um, we came from a background of writing for magazines and freelancing for magazines, we know how to choose a style. We both know how to choose a style and write to that style. Yeah. Um, so that made that very uh, a lot easier as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. Your two different styles have to come to one point. Yeah. You both have to compromise, I think. Mm. Okay, so we want to get through as many questions as possible. So who is yeah, over there? Um, I'm really embarrassed because I'm very new to all of That's this. That's okay. I have we no love idea about anything to do with writing, but it's, it's been right. up there in my brain. I've always wanted to do it. We've all so got to start somewhere. It really right. is starting yeah. point. Um, right. How do you know all the publishing houses to send your work to? I mean, 200 rejections. I mean, is there that many publishing houses? Like You get the course called Inside Publishing <laughs> and it literally tells you every single thing you need to know. That's so right. that's even the, Even right it. down to when they actually, by miracle, want to publish your work and how a publishing deal actually works. Yes. And how much you're going to get paid. Yes, yes, for it does. Work. It yeah, covers yeah. all of that. Okay. No, that was a short answer. It saves you a lot of time it's to all do the something stuff like I that. I had known yeah. when I was you. Yeah. Sorry. It's it's all the stuff I wish I had known yeah. when I was you. Pamela created the course. When she, yeah. When she was new. So you come talk to me at the cruise bar afterwards. Yeah. Though, those 200 rejections, that was across four novels as well. For, they were four failed novels. So. And the question over there? Um, and then there was one over there. So uh, we're currently taking a course, and I think it kind of hits on what you'd said about people think there's one way of doing it, and our teacher mm -hmm. kind of insists, and sometimes I want to be rebellious and not listen, so I'm hoping you can tell me something otherwise. But basically, they insist that in your first draft of your manuscript, you should stick only to the point of view of one character. Bullshit. Every bullshit. <laughs> Thank you. And that every Professionally, scene. we would say, not necessarily. Are you oh, taking okay, the course sorry. with not us? Necessarily. No. No, no, so no, to no. be clear, she's not taking no, the course yeah, at no. the Australian Writers' <laughs> yeah, To be no. clear. It's somewhere else. I've never written. Yeah. And they, yeah, they just insist that the main character needs to be in every single scene no. and have it be from that point of view the whole time, which I find quite flat and not very dynamic. Yeah. It no. sounds to me like I'm they're trying to get now. you to understand point of view. Or yeah. to take more of their courses for third draft. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a challenge, I think. <laughs> you know, they're saying to me, oh, you can't, you're saying to you, you can't do this and you can't do that, it won't work. And you're like, well, I'll show you. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've never written a book with just one perspective. No. To me, that's that's boring. I mean, I have, but only when I when that was the only right when it suits thing. the book. Yeah, yeah that's right. exactly when yeah. it suits the book. Yeah, you no, take the main. Yes. Okay. Cool. So we have a question over there. In the meantime, uh, so over, just over there. Does anyone else have any other questions? So can I have a show of hands? Okay, and over there, and over there, and over here. Yep. Go. Um, so when you. On. Yeah. When you start to write, do you write in chronicle, uh, chronological order or do you kind of go all over the place? Great um, question. And also pen and, or pen and paper or keyboard? Great question. Um, depends on the book. So up until Letter from Italy, I wrote, started on day one and wrote all the way through. Um, Letter from Italy and Desert Nurse were both written with what my husband, who is also a writer, calls spotlight scenes, where he had, so, you know, where there are some scenes you know are going to happen and they're really clear to you. Uh, and I wrote those and then 
joined them all together. So it just depends on the book. Um, I always write chronologically. I start at the start. I write all the way to the end. I usually have an idea of the... I, I know what the start of the story is. I know, and, I, and then I, then, then I usually... Like, when I do the edit, I usually lose the first three to 5,000 words because I always start in the wrong place. But I have a starting point, and I get to the end, and then I go back and have a look. And I've, I have tried writing in other ways. I have tried writing key scenes later and stuff, and what I find is I get totally bored if I know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I always write with keyboard because I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> I write chronologically because I kind of have to. There's... Mm. You know, I, I have a crisis. You can set your watch to it. I have a crisis at 30,000 words and I hurl myself on the couch and I say, I'm a hack, you know, <laughs> and at that point I send it to um, my agent, my husband, my publisher, and they all tell me. But it's also good to write chronologically if you can because I'll, when I get to 60,000 words, I usually write 80 or 90, I say to everyone, what do you think is going to happen? And if they guess, yeah, then it's like, oh, that's too predictable. We've got to, we've got to change it. But if that's not your process, like uh, yes, we, we interviewed Karen Foxley uh, for the podcast recently. I don't know if you guys had to listen to that one. It's a fascinating interview because she writes so differently. She, she describes it as puddles of words. She writes puddles of words all over the place and then she sort of tries to find the story within the puddles of words, which is... And so hers is a drafting and drafting and drafting sort of process. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the great thing about listening to those podcast author interviews, all of them, even in the, the ones that are not your genre, not your... That you Definitely. think are not for you is just to have a listen so to the different, different processes that people use um, and you can try different things that way. Okay, we had the one over here. Who is the lady over here? Yep. Then here and there. Hello. Thank you for everything today. It's been awesome. With your rejected works or and or you're saying you threw 35,000 words out and that sort of thing, do you ever rework any of that, those yes. works and maybe hope that they can... Yes, Emma. Um, so... Very similar to Alison, my very first children's book um, was commissioned by a publisher and I wrote the draft and then they decided they weren't publishing children's books after all. And um, by that stage, having gone on to write other things, I was well launched. I was almost finished the first draft of what became my first children's book, The Willow Tree's Daughter. And I just stuck ship on in a, in a drawer because I, was, I was, had a contract to write that and then the next one and yeah. so on. Um, and then when my son was born, um, I was kind of looking for an easy thing to do, you know, because I wasn't sure how many hours of writing I was going to get um, with a newborn. And just after he was born, my children's publisher came to visit to see the baby. And I had had the, the, the uh, type... It was on a dot matrix printer. That's how old it was. <laughs> And um, I had the, the printout there and I was about to start reading it. And she came and said to me, what I really want is a middle-grade science fiction novel. And I went, oh, here's one I prepared yeah, Here's one I prepared <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that became Shipborn, which we've, has just been republished uh, in a new format by um, Christmas Press as the fastest ship in space. So, yes, that was one that, that had been sitting there for a long time, had been rejected... Um, and and I went back and reworked it. And, I, I just think you, you know. should not th ever throw anything out. No, I never, yeah. you never know. And sometimes it's timing. Um, the reason it's rejected is not because it's not good or not whatever. It's just timing. Like yeah. something else has just come out similar. But the the whole cycle moves around again, and then all of a sudden, I think Meg McKinley wrote a terrific blog post about the fact that she wrote this story about you know docks, ducks or dogs or something um, five or six years ago, and then or it was sheep jumping sheep, and she. Um, 
just as she was about to submit it, um, a whole range of jumping sheep books came out, <laughs> so she didn't do it. But five years later, there's not as many jumping yeah. sheep books out there, and so her book is now coming out. So don't throw stuff out. Keep yeah. it and keep an eye on the market. Keep an eye on what you're doing. Bring it out every once in a while. Have a look at it because every single book you write, you learn more things as well. So you can go back to those earlier ones and go, oh, I see why it was oh, yeah. rejected. This is terrible. Yeah, yeah, and you can rework the stuff that you that you and it needs to be reworked. Sometimes something stalls in the middle and you put it away, um, like that 35,000 words I've just thrown away. It's actually a completely different story to the one I'm writing now. And I, I know I put it away because I wasn't emotionally in the position where I could write that story. But maybe in a couple of years' time I will be and I'll go back to it. Yeah. All right. So we have to move on. Who was the question over there? Yeah. Hi there. Um, so my question is going to be um, sounding unprofessional, but truly the biggest challenge. So for me, I need like a fire under my bum, <laughs> like a deadline, like a goal, like an ambition to then like put my bum in the seat. That's why courses and, are good. And execute. Yeah. So that would be your suggestion? Yeah, is there absolutely. And also, outside of courses, because it's not all about courses, no. NaNoWriMo, which is oh, the yeah, National novel, yeah. novel Writing Month. Yeah. Look it up online, NaNoWriMo.org. It's National Novel Writing Month. The challenge is to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole... It's a worldwide thing. You sign up, you make friends. It's quite awesome. Mm -hmm. And I have used it to fuel the writing. I've never made... 50,000 words ever in that month. I did get to 48 once, which everyone just goes, ow, seriously, you <laughs> couldn't do the extra two. Um, but the reality is, is what, what it does is it gets me going. It gets mm. the momentum going. You have to write, I think it's 1,671 words a day yeah. to get the 50,000. And that's the kind of... That's the kind of thing that group momentum can really help you get those words down. And but also, also it depends on what motivates you. Yeah. No yeah. one here can answer that yeah. question, uh, in fact. I was thinking large scale, you could, like, if you're really motivated by humiliation, you could tell as many yeah. people as you know yeah. that you're that works and then really well. every time yeah. you speak yeah. to them, they'll go, oh, oh, how's your novel going? Find a writing buddy and yeah. kind of race each other. Writing races yeah. are really one good. One guy I know, he will make a donation to the Ku Klux Klan and s if he does not reach his word count, word count by wow. the deadline. Is he a friend of so, Candace's? No. <laughs> no, he'll choose a, 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 an organisation that everyone abhors <laughs> and he'll publicly state that if he doesn't make, you know, that deadline. Hi, yeah, you've spoken about making stories interesting and exciting and that kind of thing, but so much of literary fiction, like John Banville in McEwen, is not that. It's very language-based, it's very kind of meandering. How do you make that kind of writing uh, compelling, if that's what you're into. Story. You need yeah. to always remember that no matter how beautiful the words are, and this is something that I think a lot of... I know I have a lot of friends who are literary novelists who will say that to me, that they end up... Particularly the first couple of manuscripts they write, they write the most beautiful, beautiful things and they're beautiful sentences and the themes are amazing and they get rejected because there's no story. Yeah. So even if you are writing a meandering puddle, you still have to have some... Form, you've got to think character about the journey, structure. There's got to be the character, the story arc. There's got to be, you know... Um, if you can bring those two things together, you are on an absolute winner. So it is really worth remembering, even as you write your beautiful, beautiful sentences, that they have to drive some kind of story. All right, and we have one more question that you wanted to write, the, you wanted to ask a question, and then that's our final question. <gasps> okay, I don't want to ask a doozy because it's the last one, but <laughs> um, what's your advice for, say, if you're, I've got a character, um, 
that's basically a reimagining of a Joan of Arc figure mm-hmm. in present time. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> this is a, I mean, and it's something that's, it's, I'm struggling a little bit with. How, just, I don't know, do you have any advice for reworking an actual historical person um, into a fictional character? Can um, I suggest, actually, because that's a really, really specific question. It is a quite a specific if question. You can, so what's going to happen after this is that if we're going to go to the after party at Cruise Bar, and if okay. you have additional questions, especially if they're really specific, right. absolutely okay. feel ask free yes, come yeah. to come and come ask and us. So if you do still want to buy a book, the, um, Ra and Beck will be outside um, and uh, they'll be selling books there. And then we will be signing them at Cruise Bar. And the reason for that is that Vivid require us to exit this by a very specific time that's really soon. So we can't actually do the signing here. But we would love to k- keep on talking to yeah. you um, at the at, at Cruise Bar. If you don't know where Cruise Bar is, you just walk out of the MCA, you walk out of here, and you literally walk there for like 50 metres or 100 metres, and that is Cruise Bar. It's literally outside the door. So um, please feel free to ask us as many questions as you like. We'd love to Happy. hear from you. Um, which brings us to Alison. Oh, it's the end of the day. I can't believe we're here already, and it's been with so much fun. Um, I just want to say thank you very much to our fantastic panellists, Pamela Freeman slash Hart, Candice Fox, Um, I think you'll all agree that we've learned a lot of very interesting things here today. Um, But I'd also like to say a massive thank you to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre. Oh, yeah. You'll see them out here. They're at the back. Um, These guys are amazing. They they are the reason that we can bring you a podcast every week. They are the reason that an event like this runs so beautifully. So can we please give the Australian Writers' Centre team a massive clap? And... Of course, we really want to thank you because without you, we wouldn't have a podcast or we'd literally be talking into the ether. And without you, we wouldn't have an event like this. So we want to thank you for being so incredibly awesome. Yeah, thank you. And so supportive. So, of course, we've got to end with thank you so much for coming and we look forward to meeting up with you again next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>